American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Dorothy Day, the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. Day is an interesting person to talk about because she presents a challenge to so many of us. Right. She seems to hold together things typically seen to be in tension. Earlier in life, she pushed socialism, lived a very bohemian lifestyle for many years, had multiple lovers, even had an abortion. But she became a devout Catholic and a devoted mother without abandoning the principles that originally made her a socialist. And now she's on the path to sainthood. She is indeed. Her devotion to the church and all of its teachings would put her at odds with her fellow activists at some times and with the bishops at other times, but never so much that she either abandoned her work helping the poor or compromised her faith. So let's talk about where Dorothy Day came from. She was born in Brooklyn Heights, New York, in 1897. She had three brothers and a sister. Her father was a sports journalist, and in 1904, the whole family moved cross-country when he got a job with a newspaper in San Francisco. He lost his job, however, when the great earthquake and fire of 1906 destroyed San Francisco and the newspaper he worked for, so they moved to Chicago. But before leaving San Francisco, the young Dorothy had an experience which would affect her whole life. In the midst of the suffering and devastation that followed the earthquake and fire, she saw heroic acts of charity, people just helping each other purely and simply. Yes, the great outpouring of mutual support that characterized the relief and rebuilding efforts had a deep and lasting effect on her. She also became a voracious reader in this time, and in spite of the fact that her family really wasn't religious— The Bible was one of her favorite books to read. Yes, and this was something that would characterize her life. She seemed to have a deeper sense of religion and its importance than her family and her peers. She did. In Chicago, she actually started to attend liturgies at a nearby Episcopal church when she was 10. And four years later, in 1911, she was baptized and confirmed there. During these teen years, her reading went in different directions. While in high school, she read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle plus works by Jack London, Herbert Spencer, Algis Huxley, Charles Darwin, Peter Kropotkin, and others. And then in college, she got into Russian literature, including Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Gorky. Her reading was very heavy in social consciousness, and building on that early impression from the San Francisco experience, she had a firm foundation for her later social activism. Yes, and she never stopped reading the scriptures, especially the Psalms. She went to college at the University of Illinois, but she was only there for two years before her family moved back to New York, and she moved with them, settling on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And rather than go back to college at this point, she wanted to become a writer and a journalist. But her father didn't think it was a good career for a girl, so while he helped her brothers land writing jobs, he did not do the same for Dorothy. So she seems at this point to have parted ways with her family. She went to work for some socialist publications and took up a fairly bohemian lifestyle. She lived on her own for a while in Greenwich Village and in 1917 joined a trip to Washington, D.C. to picket peacefully at the White House for women's suffrage. For that, she was arrested and spent 15 harrowing days in prison. 10 of them on a hunger strike. Yeah, the prison time was spent at Occoquan Workhouse in Virginia, which is still there. 
And uh, during this prison stay, she and the other suffragettes, including Alice Paul and the Catholic Lucy Burns, were subjected to what is called the Night of Terror. Many were beaten savagely, some left for dead. Dorothy survived and was released. Later, she said she endured by remembering and meditating on the Psalms. After her release, she returned to Manhattan and took up again in Greenwich Village, where she met Eugene O'Neill, the famous playwright. She credits O'Neill with reawakening in her the sense of religion, and in particular, by introducing her to Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, which is a lovely look at how God, with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, relentlessly pursues each and every one of us. Meditating on this poem led her to wonder about her own life and where she was headed. She would corner people at parties to talk about God, and she would steal into churches to witness benediction. But she still had some wandering to do before she let God catch her. Right. She took up with a radical communist named Mike Gold, but their affair didn't last that long. Next was Lionel Moyes, and with him she got pregnant. But he dreaded being a father and so prevailed upon Dorothy to have an abortion. She did so in part to keep their relationship with Moyes, but it didn't work. They parted ways. The abortion haunted her for the rest of her life, and it was part of why she was so unabashedly pro-life after her conversion. Right. Then, in 1921, she got married in a civil ceremony to Berkeley Toby, and they spent a year together, most of it in Europe. But that didn't last either. In 1925, she began her final love affair, this time with Forster Batterham. Dorothy soon found herself pregnant, much to her surprise and delight, since she thought her abortion had made her sterile. Her daughter, Tamar Teresa, was born in March of 1926. And motherhood changed basically everything. Suddenly, all her religious sense came to the fore. She wanted to be married, and she wanted God in her life, and especially in her daughter's life. Shortly after Tamar's birth, she met a local religious sister on the street, Sister Aloysia, whom she started peppering with questions. Eventually, she realized she wanted to be married in the Catholic Church, and she wanted Tamar to be baptized in the Catholic Church. Right, but Forster wasn't nearly on the same page. He rejected organized religion in general, the Catholic Church in particular, and he dreaded being a father. They fought about this until Dorothy finally, definitively ended the intimate relationship. They remained friends for the rest of their lives, but that was the end of the affair. This was the end of Dorothy Day's time as a communist. Though one associate had seen it earlier, he said that she would never be a good communist because she was too religious. Yeah. So Tamar was baptized in July of 1927, and after taking lessons in the faith from Sister Aloysia, Dorothy was conditionally baptized in December of 1928 with Sister Aloysia as her godparent. Dorothy supported herself and Tamar as a writer, including as a reporter for Commonweal magazine. In 1932, she was sent on assignment for Commonweal, covering Depression-era hunger strikes in Washington, D.C., when she decided that she had to do more for social activism. She saw how dedicated these marchers were to supporting the destitute and noted that Catholic leaders were not among them. She later wrote in her autobiography, I could write, I could protest, to arouse the conscience, but where was the Catholic leadership in the gathering of bands of men and women together for the actual works of mercy that the comrades had always made part of their technique in reaching the workers? And this point would figure large in her life. In an article she wrote in 1933, she explained what Catholics don't understand about communism. In the article, she talks about how the first thing so many anti-communists point to as the reason to reject communism is the atheism. 
But, she points out, the original draw of communism isn't atheism. Few who adopt communism give much thought to God when they're first drawn to communism. What draws them to communism is the idea that people should help each other without focusing on personal enrichment. And that is a very attractive idea, especially among those who are suffering or who are destitute. She writes that even Lenin and Marx understood that the way to get people on board with the communist agenda was to focus on the altruism, draw people in by emphasizing the charity aspect, and then eventually the whole of communism, including the atheism, would be accepted. So essentially, she argues, the thing that Catholics have to do to undercut communism is be at least as charitable, altruistic, and giving as the communists, and make it clear that the charity comes from our faith. Then people would be open to the reason we are charitable. Exactly. But let's go back to that trip to Washington, D.C. in 1932. She made a fateful prayer while in the nation's capital. Right. While there, she visited the still-under-construction National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception on the campus of Catholic University of America, where she prayed ardently for guidance in finding a way to use her talents and gifts to help her fellow workers and the poor. And God never fails to answer a prayer. It just isn't always as obvious as the answer to this one. Right, seriously. The day after Dorothy returned to New York from D.C., she met Peter Morin, and the world would never be the same. Well, that's a bit dramatic, but not entirely wrong. Let's talk a little bit about where Peter Morin came from. Well, Peter Morin was from France. He was 20 years days senior, and he had been a brother in the Christian Brothers before emigrating to Canada to avoid military conscription. He had done many hard labor jobs and lived vagabond life, enjoying the freedom that comes from poverty. He was free to read and meditate and pray and talk with others and discuss his ideas about living the virtuous life. He came to embrace poverty as a gift from God. In December 1932, during one of Morin's many stays in New York City, George Schuster, editor of Commonweal Magazine, gave him Dorothy Day's name and address, and that's when Morin went and introduced himself to Day. And in short order, Morin became the spiritual guide and teacher that Day had been looking for. And Day became the pupil that Morin had been seeking. Morin saw Day as a new Catherine of Siena. He thought she was a spiritual dynamo who could move mountains and make the powerful listen to her. He taught her a new way to look at history, that what was important wasn't politics, but sanctity, that it didn't matter what nations and states and economies are doing, but rather who was living a holy life and getting to heaven. Any program to affect social change had to focus on sanctity and community rather than politics. If people just focused on being holy, the world would change for the better. That reminds me of St. Catherine of Siena's line, Be whom God made you to be, and you will set the world on fire. Right, and Day lapped it up. Morin proposed she start a newspaper, which they named The Catholic Worker. Day was enthused by the idea, but she was concerned about the financing of this venture. Morin reminded her that, In the history of the saints, capital is raised by prayer. God sends you what you need when you need it. You will be able to pay the printer. Just read the lives of the saints. And the money did come. It didn't come easily or regularly, but through begging and relationships and a modest one cent per issue charge, the money did come. The first issue was published on May 1st, 1933, May Day, and the Catholic Worker Movement was born. The following year, 1934, Morin and Day rented a four-story, 11-bedroom house to use as a house of hospitality. They accepted all who needed a place to stay. Day said that every stranger was Christ and should be treated as such. He took in people with mental problems, drinking problems, all sorts of problems, including people whom the other social help houses would not generally have helped. 
Dorothy Day's belief about the importance of welcome came straight from her Catholic faith. She wrote in The Long Loneliness, her 1952 memoir, We cannot love God unless we love each other, and to love we must know each other. We know him in the breaking of bread, and we know each other in the breaking of bread, and we are not alone anymore. Within a few years, the Catholic worker houses spread across the country, with 32 of them popping up from Baltimore to Seattle. Day and Morin continued writing and publishing the Catholic worker newspaper throughout the 1930s and advocating for workers and Catholic social teaching. And this is where the seeming paradoxes of Dorothy really come to the fore. Day advocated strongly for labor rights, racial integration, radical equality, and absolute pacifism in ways that made many, including some in the church hierarchy, uncomfortable. But her regular prayer routine, her love of liturgy, her adherence to Catholic teaching, in particular on abortion, and her refusal to buck the bishops or to oppose them in big ways really vexed her otherwise fellow travelers on the left. One particular example of this tension happened during the Second World War. Her pacifism and how strongly she pushed it in the pages of her paper caused problems. At one level, it caused the circulation to drop from 150,000 copies to just 30,000. Also, it drew the bishops' ire as they were trying to support the war effort. Bishops tried to force her to stop publishing or to remove Catholic from the title of the paper. She wrote a respectful but firm letter back to the archbishop, stating that she had as much right to call her paper Catholic as the Catholic war veterans had to call their organization Catholic. Another example happened in the 1950s. Unionized cemetery workers went on strike and Cardinal Spellman refused to bend to their demands. Some of the Catholic worker newspaper went to march the picket line with the strikers. Day wrote to the cardinal asking him to recognize that the dignity of the workers was more important than a dispute over wages. She entreated the cardinal to be the one to take the first step to resolve the dispute, saying, Go to them, conciliate them. It is easier for the great to give in than the poor. Cardinal Spellman wouldn't budge, and he brought in lay brothers and seminarians whom he could control to dig graves. The strike was broken, and the workers agreed to the six-day, 48-hour work week. Day lamented the outcome, saying, A cardinal, ill-advised, exercised so overwhelming a show of force against the union of poor working men. There is a temptation of the devil to that most awful of all wars, the war between the clergy and the laity. Later, though, she said of Spellman, He is our chief priest and confessor. He is our spiritual leader of all of us who live here in New York. But he is not our ruler. After the Second Vatican Council, some things got easier for Day with the bishops since the council had directed the church to embrace more openly a lot of the things Day was already doing. The readership of the Catholic worker expanded and the number of Catholic worker houses grew. But then the 1960s happened. And now it was the turn of the left wing to be confounded. She had always opposed the welfare state, believing it was bad for the soul for people to be dependent on government handouts for their livelihood. What was right was for individuals who had the means to support those in need freely, and for those in need to accept support freely given without demanding or expecting more. But beyond her antipathy to governmental safety nets, many who had previously celebrated her as the left-wing opponent of the bishops from within the church thought she would be at the vanguard of pushing even greater reform of the church. But she didn't, and they didn't know what to do with that. She opposed revolution, unless it was a revolution of the heart. She was a Catholic. She embraced the church's teaching. She prayed. She loved the liturgy. 
She knew the need for hierarchy and embraced it for what it was. She loved the saints, though she rightly disliked how people tried to canonize her while she was still alive. She also loved and embraced the church's social teaching and championed the cause of the worker and the poor. And she was never shy about speaking her mind or standing up for a cause when she thought justice and charity demanded it. The last major cause she joined was to march with Cesar Chavez in California for farm workers' rights in the 1970s. The FBI actually had a file on day keeping an eye on her as a potentially dangerous communist troublemaker, but church leaders vouched for her, so the FBI stopped following her so closely. In 1971, Day was recognized by the Diocese of Davenport with the Pachamanteras Award. In 1973, the University of Notre Dame bestowed on her the Leitari Medal. And in 1976, she joined Mother Teresa in Steubenville, Ohio, where they both were awarded the Pavarello Medal by Franciscan University of Steubenville. And through all of her charity and activism for workers, it was her wonder at beauty that shone through. One person interviewing her later in life noted how she stared in wonder at an unremarkable vase of flowers, marveling at the beauty she saw in them. In 1977, Day wrote, What samples of his love and creation all around us? Even in the city, the changing sky, the trees, frail though they be, which prisoners grow on Riker's Island to be planted around the city, bear witness. People, all humankind in some way. Dorothy Day died of a heart attack in 1980 at the Mary House on East 3rd Street in Manhattan. Her funeral procession was greeted at the Church of the Nativity by Terence Cardinal Cook, Archbishop of New York. Her daughter, Tamar, was at her side when she died. And Tamar's father, Foster Batterham, joined Tamar at Day's funeral and burial. Today, Day's cause for canonization is open, though some in the Catholic worker movement claim that it is contrary to her own desires. They point to something she said frequently, don't call me a saint, I don't want to be dismissed that easily. She did say this often, but she said it in the present tense as in when people would call her a living saint. She seemed to be saying, my life has had its ups and downs and it's been a struggle all along the way. If I'm on the path of sainthood, it's because I'm engaging in the struggle for union with Christ, and you should too. And since she was such a loyal daughter of the church, if the church does eventually canonize her, thus declaring her an example for us all to follow, she would certainly embrace the church's decision. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review and support the work of SQPN. Your support at sqpn.com slash give helps make sure American Catholic history and all of the StarQuest podcasts remain available. To learn more about Dorothy Day, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com slash history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. Dorothy, how I love you, how I love you, oh my Dorothy.